0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 11. Imagine that. Let's see if you can imagine this. We're actually going to go through verses 5 through 13 this morning, which is eight whole verses, of uh, packed, yummy truth. So you can turn there and we'll be getting into the text in a minute. Most of you uh, who are parents or have been parents, I guess you probably still would be, um, you know, you. Y- you want to do what's best for your kids. And so when you're a parent, you a lot of times make rules. And these aren't, you know, biblical mandates, but they're rules that for your kids and your household that you make because it you feel that this is going to be good for them to one degree or another. And so the problem is, is that sometimes you wonder if you should bend those rules or not because, you know, it's it's not really... A, you know, the Bible doesn't say you have to eat your crust, but <laughs> <clears throat> there's a principle there that you feel passionate about or whatever. And so you get this, you know, mom, can I have a soda with dinner? It's like, no, son. Well, why not? Well, because you have already had enough sugar today and besides the caffeine's going to keep you awake all night. Oh, please, mom, please. You know, caffeine doesn't bother me. No. But tomorrow oh there 's any schools, even if it keeps me up i just and please 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 i mean we 've all been there, and sometimes they 're persisting, and they 're pleading it kind of wears you down, and you 're thinking to yourself, you know the bible doesn 't say they 'll shall not have soda with dinner and and, uh, and you know, just because it'd keep me up all night doesn't mean it's going to keep them up all night. And maybe it would be good for them to stare at the ceiling all night and teach them a lesson. And, you know, I mean, you start going through this and so maybe you just say, okay, okay, you can, you can, you can have it. It's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now you already told them no. You already told them no twice. So why did you give in? Well, you know, because you want to please them. I mean, you want to give your kids good things. I mean, parents want to do that. Maybe it was because you were tired of saying no. You know, their persistence kind of wore you down. Or maybe it's just your weak parent. You're more concerned about your own comfort than what's best for your kids. Well, God is nothing like an imperfect, sin-cursed parent. God is not fickle. He always does what is best. If he makes a rule, he never breaks it. If something's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. God knows in his mind the very best thing for you and he's sticking to that plan. But God does like it when we're persistent. He likes persistent Important that praying, when we come to Him, and we just really go after what we think He wants, He really likes that, which we are going to learn this morning in our text. Now, as we've been going through Luke 11, we have seen that Jesus is teaching uh, His disciples how to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, disciples' prayer, to learn the great priorities of prayer, how we are to pray about certain things as a priority, very broad things, very important things, encompassing things. And there's just a lot of information, as we have seen, in the Lord's Prayer. But not only that, there is more information still that we need to know. And so Jesus continues to teach on prayer in the text before us. He actually gives two parables, two parables. The first parable is real similar to a parable we're going to encounter if we ever live to see Luke 18. (laughs) And the second parable is actually to help interpret that first parable and teach us a little bit more. And Jesus here in these two parables in this section that we're going to be looking at this morning is really kind of going for the attitudes and emotions and the expectations that we should have in prayer. So look in your Bibles at Luke 11 verse 5 and follow along as I read down through verse 13. And we this is just this is just so convicting and so great. Uh, you're just going to love this. At least I did. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answered and says, do not bother me. The door is already shut and my children and I are in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of this persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, from this section, and these two parables, we're just going to learn about two important aspects of prayer. I'm going to touch on a couple other ones that we've already mentioned, but two major aspects of prayer, facets of prayer, whatever you want to call them, attitudes, emotions, Expectations in prayer that we need to have when we pray so we can give God the glory he deserves and pray in a way where we are blessed and God's name is hallowed. And the first is, is we need to be persistent in prayer. Now, let me just transport you back in time because a lot of times when, you know, we talk about somebody in a house, um, you might think of a house like you live in. But let me just kind of just take you back to the ancient Near East at this time to, you know, the average house in one of the little villages around the outskirts of Jerusalem or whatever. You live in a one-bedroom house one bedroom house. There's no dividers, there's no entryway, living room, dining room, family room, kitchen room, bathrooms, bedrooms. You know, there's none of that room. Dirt floor, okay? Um, maybe in one corner or on one wall, there is a kind of a little fireplace set up so you can actually cook in there and the smoke will go out. And at nighttime, when you're Tired and you're sleepy, you come into this place and you spread out mats and you lay on the dirt floor on the mat and that's where you sleep covering up most of the floor in the morning you get up and roll up your mats and tuck them away so you have some room to walk around people didn't spend a lot of time in their houses they were not real cozy places um, but they were places maybe with a table and um, a place where you could just you know get out of the rain and maybe the sweltering heat uh, but mostly you would spend time outside and just kind of go there uh, in case of bad weather and or to stay warm and or to sleep so keep that thought in your mind. And look at verse 5. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. And goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. I'll just stop there for a second. The Greek literally reads here as the English Standard Version or the New King James Version have it. Which of you having a friend or it might be paraphrased as can you imagine having a friend? That's the whole idea. And this lets us know that Jesus wants us to picture in our mind the scenario I just explained to you. He wants us to think about the average home at that time and what it would be like in the middle of the night when everybody's sleeping. A friend comes and begins to pound on your door and you're fast asleep because it's midnight. Now, a lot of people I realize today stay up pretty late. Some people are late nighters. But what if you didn't have a TV? What if you didn't have any electricity or any lights or whatever, except for a small candle and a little oil lamp? Most people just went to bed because, you know, that's what you do. I mean, you go inside, you you know, it's just dark and uh, there isn't a whole bunch of gadgets to keep you awake all night. And so when it got dark, people would eat and just, you'd go to sleep. That was kind of the standard thing. And so at midnight, pretty much everybody was sleeping. But we learn here in the text that there's this needy man and then there is this friend who is sleeping. The sleeping man, as we shall see, represents God in certain aspects uh, who answers prayer. And the man asking represents all of us who are in need of having our prayers answered. Now, we've gone over this before, but uh, I just want to bring it up again. You've got to be a friend of God if you want to have your prayers answered. You must be reconciled to God. These two men were friends. The point is, is you've got to be the friend of God if you ever expect to have your prayers answered. You know, there's this all kinds of um, praying going on in all sorts of religions and faiths and cults and and even non-religious people. When a big enough tragedy happens, a lot of those people pray. But you know, the scriptures make it clear. God does not hear their prayer. There must be, you must be reconciled with God, have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Otherwise, the only prayer God's ever gonna listen to is the prayer of repentance and faith in Christ. So, keep that in mind. We've talked about that in great detail in a previous sermon. But look at verse 6. The needy man in the parable is now going to explain why he is bothering his friend at such an inconvenient time, midnight. He says, for a friend of mine has come to me for a journey, and I I have nothing to set before him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, come on. It's the middle of the night. I mean, what would you think if I came up to your house in the middle of the night and said, hey, can I have four slices of bread? And you're, what are you doing here? It's like, I need some bread. It's like, can't you wait till morning? Uh, what are you doing here? I mean, it just seems so weird that the guy is bothering his friend. And when it talks about three loaves, we're probably talking about three little, you know, rolls, you know, something you'd make a little submarine sandwich out of or something, you know, small. What is he doing in the middle of the night, waking up his friend, looking for bread? Well, see, the reason we don't understand what's going on here is we don't understand the, the severity And devotion to hospitality that's in the ancient Near East. They are serious about hospitality. The greatest example of this, I think, is found in the book of Genesis. If you remember what happened when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and sent the angels down there to the city and the homosexual men of Sodom wanted to have relations that's to rape the angels. And so... They're hiding inside of Lot's house and Lot offers to give his two virgin daughters to the men of the city in order to appease them so they don't bother the angels that are under his roof. I mean, we think of that and go, whoa, that is extreme. Well, that's the whole deal. He had such a huge sense of responsibility that he he didn't know what to do. He had to protect his guests. It was just. The way it was back then. Because people traveled around, when you brought somebody under your roof, you were responsible to take care of them, protect them, provide for them. It was just kind of a universally understood thing, which today in America, we hardly know anything about. We just hit the garage door button, you know, open up. The garage door closes behind us. We take the secret passage to the weight of our house. If anybody comes and says, oh, it's an inconvenient time, make a cal- you know appointment with us on our calendar, call us later by. You know, that's it. I've had friends in the Middle East who who are missionaries in the Middle East who said, yeah, it's just one of the hardest things there is their sense of hospitality. I'm thinking, well, why is that hard? I said, well, let me, it's just like, it's three in the afternoon. You're walking down the street and it's like, hi, how are you doing? I was like, fine. Come in, come in, come in. Well, I'm really busy. I'm going to just come, 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 my friend. They grab your arm. They take you in your house. You'd sit down and, and then they, they give you coffee, which makes espresso taste like water (laughs) with lots of sugar in it about a 50 50 mixture so you're drinking this and pretty soon you're talking really fast you know (laughs) and you're having these discussions you know and you're talking and they go tell me about your wife tell me about your son tell me about your daughter tell me about your uncle tell me about your aunt tell me about your business tell me how are you doing how are you doing you know just talking 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 meanwhile there's all these people in the back who are scurrying around frantically you're what's going on? It's like, you're staying for dinner. We're preparing a feast for you. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, I was going to go. I wasn't. Done. Oh, no, 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 no. We are going to feed you. So then you stay there and then they bring out all the best they have and a great sacrifice to themselves. And then you're thinking, OK, I'm going to get to go. No, no, no. You're staying for dessert. You know, and there's more people and neighbors running around outside. You think, well, what's going on here? And then finally, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, thank you, thank you. You're all wired up on coffee. I mean, this stuff is jet fuel coffee. And you leave. And you've now experienced hospitality in the Middle East. In America, we we can't even understand this. But this is what's happening in our text. This is why the guy's there at midnight. This is why the guy's there at midnight. He's got this friend who has come to him in the middle of the night. Unexpected, you know, you don't get on your cell phone and call up and say, hey, I'll be there at 1130. A lot of times people would travel at two times during the day. They would they would travel maybe in. Late afternoon through about midnight, then they would sleep and travel in the morning and then kind of sleep in the afternoon and kind of do dual shifts and try and travel during the cool part of the day. This person's probably traveling at night, shows up to his house, maybe, you know, 1130 or so, and says, bangs on his door, wakes him up, wakes his wife up, wakes his children up, and says, I'm here. Oh, uncle, whatever. Glad you are here. And then that... Middle East tension comes in. I've got to take care of him. I've got to give him my best. And we don't have any food. So where can I go? I, the market's closed. The market's not open in the middle of the night. I know I can go to my neighbor. So he says, here, here, sit down, sit down, sit down. And pretty soon the whole house now is up catering to the traveler. And he says, I'll be right back. Off He runs. And he runs and he gets to his friend and friend, give me three loaves. He says, a friend of mine has, has come to me in a journey and I have nothing to set before him. I mean, this is a panic situation. I've got to show hospitality. Look at verse 7. And from inside, he, the, the sleeping neighbor, answers and says, don't bother me. The door has already been shut and my children are in bed i cannot get up and give you anything the guy is sound asleep his wife and children are sound asleep it's the middle of the night they're spread out all over the floor on their mats i can't give get up and get you anything i'd have to crawl all over my kids and my family and step in everybody and turn on the light and make all this noise and wake everybody up and open the door and let the cold air in hello go away now, keep in mind here that the issue is not the bread. The bread is not the issue. The guy's is more than willing to give his neighbor three loaves of bread. And he's going to. And when he gets up, he gives him as much as he needs. The bread is not the issue. The issue is, is the inconvenience It's very inconvenient to get up at this time for some loaves of bread. Now, husbands, you just try this sometimes. Some Saturday when your wife is really, really tired and wanting to sleep in, just get up real early before it's light, get ready, and at 5.30 a.m., wake her up and say, Honey! Honey! Wake up! Wake up! I want to take you out to breakfast right now. Just get dressed and we'll leave right now. <laughs> now, what do you suppose she's going to say? <laughs> she's going to look at you with those squinty eyes and look at the clock and say, it's 5.30 it's not even light outside. Go away. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm trying to get some sleep. Now, it's not that she doesn't want to go to breakfast with. She would love to go to breakfast with you later. Later. She's not fine with the timing. She's not fine with the consequences. She doesn't want to be running around outside without her face on and her hair done so she can go out to breakfast with you. And so it is in our text. The giving of bread is not the issue. It's the inconvenience associated with the request. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Sorry. Henry Ironside commenting on this said, quote, this is used only as an illustration of what to our poor finite minds might seem to be the attitude of God when you do not receive immediately the answer to our prayer. No request of ours can ever be a trouble to him. His delays are not denials, but are meant to test our faith, end quote. So what does the man do? He says, okay, he won't get up. I, I guess I'll go home and just be shamed in front of my guest. Not in your life. Come on. Just get up. I'll leave you alone, but I'm not leaving. till I have those three legs. Oh, go away, go away. I need three loaves. You've got the loaves. I need the loaves. Give me the loaves. And something happens between verse 7 and 8. That's implied by what Jesus says in verse 8. If you look there, I tell you, even though he will not... Get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Notice, friendship isn't enough here. (laughs) You want me to get up and give you three little O's in the middle of the night? Sorry, pal. Friendship isn't enough. You know, your wife loves you. Your wife is your best friend. But that isn't enough to get her up at 530 without getting done and run outside the house. Emergency, fine. Breakfast, no way. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Keeps banging. I'm not going away. I'm out here. I, I'm i out here. Bread, bread, bread. I'll wake up your whole family. bread. Bread. Ironside says, quote, he refuses to be denied. He will not take no for an answer. One could imagine his friend saying to his wife, we shall have no sleep tonight unless I attend to his plea. So he goes to the pantry and gets the bread and gives it to his persistent neighbor in code, opens the bolt and says, here, good night. The word translated persistence as the New American Standard has it, it's translated boldness in the NIV. In the English Standard Version, it's translated impudence. It really means shamelessness. The guy is shameless. Not going away. Not going away. I want my bread. I want my bread and I want it now. Give it to me and I'll go away. He keeps begging. He keeps begging until the guy gives in. So guys, just try that with your wife sometime. No, better not. Um, Honey, let's go to breakfast. Come on, please, 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 please. And then you just get ready. If there's anything she can throw at you, she probably will. But the lesson taught here is just absolutely critical to prayer. God wants us to be persistent in prayer. He loves it when we're persistent in prayer because persistence is an attitude. It is kind of an emotion that is Coupled with faith that God has what we need and he does. And he will give it to us. And that we must have it if we're asking for it for his glory. Why would he deny it? Why would he deny it? And notice that the inconvenience here. The sleeping man had to go through in order to give it. Is a huge issue. The request was a difficult one to make as the needy man had to run out in the middle of the night himself, right? He had to run to his neighbors. It was actually more difficult than the guy asking here than the guy giving, right? He had to get up. He had to run to his neighbors. And so he's like, hey, listen, don't tell me you're sleeping, pal. I had to run over here in the middle of the night, my jammies or whatever. But Jesus is teaching us here that even if you have a need that seems too great or too minor or too inconvenient, just ask it anyways. Just ask it anyways. God is not like a sleepy neighbor. God is not like a neighbor who with persistence might give in to you. If you're persistent with God, he surely will give you what you ask That's the whole point here. God loves us to ask in passionate persistence because it demonstrates to him that we believe we need him, that he has what we need and that he can give it to us. And he loves that kind of faith coupled with emotion, coupled with action. I mean, if you have a, A brand new car and you get up and you're eating breakfast and you pray at breakfast. you know, Thank you for this food and Lord, please help my new car make it to work today. I mean, that's not a very big request. I mean, sometimes they conk out when a module goes bad or something, but usually not. But if you have one of those real gem of a cars, (laughs) those piece of junk cars, the ones that you have to have the wire hanging outside the window to open the latch from the outside and... The spinometer's broken and smoke comes out and it makes all kinds of funny noises and the floorboards kind of rusted through. You can see the road going by <laughs> everywhere you park it. There's a pile of oil underneath it. You know, one of those cars, one of those cars where the mechanic says, listen, this thing is beyond its last leg. Don't get in it or it's going to break down and you'll be stranded. And then you're eating your breakfast and you say, Lord, help me get to work again. And God keeps doing that day after day after day for a whole year. Now, you're like, listen, this is a miracle car here. It looks like a piece of junk. But man, it is a miracle. <laughs> and you just praise God. You tell everybody about how your mechanic said this, but God's done that. And see, God is able to amp- amplify His name being hallowed, his name being glorified, because we are willing to ask him. And so whether it's a huge, just jaw-dropping prayer request, or whether it is some minor, seemingly insignificant request, or anything in between, just ask, just ask, Jesus is saying, ask. And ask persistently. Ask persistently. The sleeping man in the parable is parallel with God. God is no sleepy, reluctant neighbor. He never sleeps, he never slumbers, and he loves to good give, give good gifts to his children. He loves to do it. Look at verse 9. Here's kind of the punchline of the first parable. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Here, And the Greek is really good here. Jesus uses what is, he uses an emphatic statement here. He says, I myself is what it means. I myself am telling you. And then he gives three imperatives, present active imperatives. These are commands. I command you. I myself am commanding you. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. That's what he's telling us here. Isn't that amazing? He's begging us to ask, seek, and find. He's commanding it. He wants us to do it so he can answer. Think about that. And there is an escalation here in these. You know, asking is when you acknowledge that you need God. We talked about this before. When Jesus said, you pray in this way. You have to acknowledge, you have to humble yourself that you can't do it, that God can do it, that you need God, that he's got the resources, so you ask. Seeking, though, is everything asking is but put into action. Now you're making effort. Knocking is kind of the intensity that goes with your asking and seeking. So it might be like this. Ask, seek, knock, like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Go for it! Which means that when you pray, you need to be passionate. You need to be zealous. You need to have faith that is coupled with crying out and begging and pleading with God. Ironside says, quote, it is for our own soul's good that we become earnest in our supplications, pouring out our hearts in unrelenting intercession, literally storming the gate of the storehouses of blessing until the answer comes. God will never deny the prayer of faith. Ask, seek, knock are degrees of importunity. And as we continue to besiege the throne of grace, we shall be moved to heart searching and to self-judgment. That we may pray according to the will of God. End quote. I don't know about you. This week, this is this just beat me all week. I was telling somebody I felt like it was a giant Despair's castle all week studying this because so I just re- realized how many prayers I've prayed that were not like this. Now, how many sleepy prayers have we prayed? You know, we just come to God in this kind of just cold lifeless, ritualistic boredom that we call prayer, but really is nothing more than an offense to our great God and King. Remember that when you pray, you enter into the throne room of God. Think about that. You approach what the author of Hebrews calls the throne of grace in prayer. And what do you suppose the king thinks about the attitude of a person who comes in and says, Oh, Lord, I've got some needs. Maybe you'll answer him, maybe you won't. I'm sure the cherubim standing on one side of the throne look over at the seraphim on the other side of the throne as if to say, should we tell him not to pray that way? It is disrespecting and dishonoring to our king. But there you are apparently oblivious to the great privilege that Christ died to give you. To give you access into the presence of God himself anytime you want. To talk to God about anything you want for as long as you want. And just because you have access to the throne room of God at any time you want, doesn't negate the fact that Jesus is still the great king. That you need to honor and respect when you approach him. I mean, just think about it. I don't know how many of you have had a private conversation with the president, but just think of just the president. What if the president said, calls you up and says, listen, I don't know why anything you want to talk to me about anything that's important anything that you think will help our country you can call me anytime you want here's the number interrupt me in any meeting anything i'm doing you can talk to me even if i'm giving the state of the union address i'll stop to talk to you anytime for as long as you want to talk now that'd be a pretty huge deal wouldn't it what if you were to call him up and he said oh you know you just you know I was just in the war room. Oh, yeah, but <gasps> I, I call you. <laughs> what do you need? Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is, you know, it's like, listen, pal, you're wasting my time. I didn't give you this privilege so you could dribble on in front of me. What do you want? What are you in earnest about? When we are born again, when we know Christ and we've repented of our sins and we've placed our faith in what Jesus did in the cross to save us and believe in his resurrection. When we have been born again, we then have access into the very presence of God. We can enter into the Holy of Holies. We have we each of us are our own priest and we come in the blood of Jesus and the presence of God approaching the throne of grace to find help and mercy in a time of need. Anytime we want, as long as we want, whenever we want. But this is no excuse to slight God or treat him disrespectfully with cold, lazy, ritualistic prayers. J.C. Rowell said, quote, whenever we begin to feel careless about our private prayers, we may depend on it. That there is something very wrong with the state of our souls. There are breakers ahead and we are in imminent danger of shipwreck, end quote. Thomas Watson, the godly man's picture said, quote, prayer without fervency is like incense without fire. The reason why so many prayers suffer shipwreck is because they split against the rock of unbelief. Praying without faith is shooting without bullets. When faith takes prayer in hand, then we draw near to God. He goes on to say, let us then close ranks with our savior and pray more earnestly. Luke twenty-two forty-four. let us be important at suitors and resolve with St. Bernard that we will not come away from God without God. Prayer is a bomb which will make heaven's gates fly open. And then he finally explains the the attitude that we need to have in prayer when he says we when we are zealous in devotion and our heart waxes hot within us. Here is a fire from heaven kindling our sacrifice. How odious it is for a man to be all fire when he is sitting and all ice when he is praying. A pious heart like water seething hot boils over with holy affections, end quote. And this is what God wants, man. He wants seething hot prayers. He loves seething hot prayers. He doesn't want you coming in there, oh, Please save so-and-so, and God bless the, the, ba- the green beans. And... I love these green beans! Thank you! Some passion in there. May God give us prayers that are seething hot and boiling with affections. That's what we're after. Asking, seeking, Knocking. We want to see God glorified. We want to see his name hallowed. We want to see his kingdom come. We want to see him supplying our daily needs and forgiving us our sins. And what do you, if you do come to God that way, what if you have that kind of prayer life? What can you expect? Look at verse 10 for everyone who asks, receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. That is not a man asleep in heaven. He does not say, okay. Bolt the gates of the storehouses of heaven and put the cherubim in front of it with the flaming sword so no one can get anything out of there. Maybe a grain of sand underneath the door, but nothing else. Oh man, they are just wide open. He's already said, I will give you every, I've given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, grace upon grace, or grace following grace, having all sufficiency in everything for every good need. I mean, what more do you want? I mean, God's saying, just ask. No request is too great and no request is too small. God wants us to ask. He wants us to ask about everything, to pray without ceasing. And you remember what happened in Exodus 32 when Moses went up on the mountain and he's up there getting the Ten Commandments and the people are kind of waiting. On, I think he may have died. So they all get a bunch of gold together. And Aaron says, yeah, we threw it in the fire and I'll pop this golden calf. Sure. And then later on in Numbers chapter 14, the people are grumbling and complaining. Would you bring us out here into the wilderness to kill us? And in both of those instances, God says, Moses, get back. Get back from the people so you don't get scorched when I wipe them out right now. And you remember what Moses prays? He says, oh, this would be inconvenient for me, Lord. No. He says, Lord, wait a second now. What about your name? What about your reputation among the nations? You kill your own people right now. And other people are going to say of you that you weren't able to bring your people out of the wilderness and turn them into a nation. That the only reason you delivered them was to kill them in the wilderness. This will be bad for your reputation, for your name among the pagans. Don't do it. And so with great passion, he pleads with God. And what happens? God extends mercy and grace. And he doesn't destroy them, even though, get this, they're still a stiff-necked, stubborn, and obstinate people. God still blesses them every day, though they be rebellious sinners. Because Moses interceded. You remember Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. Do you remember that little story about Jacob when he gets to the river Jabbok? He arrives there late some night and maybe they're setting up tent and he's just standing by the river. And all of a sudden, behold, somebody appears. It's the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And what does Jacob do? Does he fall down on his face and say, oh, Lord, don't kill me? No. Does he grovel in the dust? No, does he, oh, oh, is that what he does? No, he tackles the angel. He grabs hold of the angel of the Lord. Think about that. I mean, would you do that? Do you saw an angel? Come here. That's what he did. And why would he do that? Well, he had already purchased the, the right of the firstborn from his brother Esau with a bowl of soup, a very shrewd business maneuver. Then through some deception, he got the blessing of the firstborn from his father, though he did it in an evil way. The good thing was is he wanted the blessing of God so much in his life, he ached for it. He ached for it, and he knew that if he was going to be great and give God great glory, he had to have the blessing. And at this point in his life, he's learned a lot of things and come around full circle. And he sees that angel. He says, "I'm holding on to that angel, and I'm not letting go." And it says they wrestled and wrestled until it was almost daybreak, and the angel the Lord smites him in the hip he still won't let him go and says i'm not letting you go until you bless me god likes that god really liked that and oh did god ever bless jacob after that time you just read i mean he is the father of the 12 tribes of the nation israel and was named israel by god you remember hannah Oh, Hannah, barren, couldn't have a child, scorned by the other wife, just miserable. Finally, she just had to have a son. So in First Samuel chapter 1, she thought, okay, I'm going to the temple and I'm getting a boy. Now think about that. I don't care if I've been barren or not. And so she goes there, and with great earnestness, she pleads to the Lord. She begs God. The text says, and greatly distressed, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. As a matter of fact, she wanted a baby so bad, she said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll give him away to you in your service. Again, notice, it wasn't about her. She's the one to give that baby to the Lord. And so she got pregnant. And then she had a son, her only son, whom she loved. And she took that son to the temple and said, here, as soon as he was weaned, three or so, two or three, and just walked away from her son. Now, think about that. That son then became... The greatest judge, prophet, and priest of Israel, Samuel. Do you remember Hezekiah? One of the few godly kings right before the nation uh, of Judah fell. And he was, for the most part, a great guy. And at that time, the world power was the Assyrian. And Sennacherib was the king, or as one of my friends called him, Sennacherib. And so Sennacherib is the king. And Sennacherib has this, uh, historians don't know exactly how big his army was, but it, it was billions, probably in the multiple millions. Anyways, lots, lots of soldiers. And he is sweeping down the Mediterranean basin like his locust with his armies, and he's just wiping out every place he comes to without problem. And so Sennacherib knows he's coming to Jerusalem. And though Jerusalem is not a gigantic city, it's a very fortified city and historically was a place that was a great stronghold. And so he sends Rabshakeh, his servant, to talk to Hezekiah and he reads him this letter which basically says, listen, your God isn't big enough to stop us. Don't be deceived into trusting in your God because my king is coming and we've wiped out every nation before you. And we're going to come here and we're going to take Jerusalem. Uh, so you might as well just open the gates and surrender and let us plunder you. And so what did Hezekiah do? He marched at the temple. He spread the letter out before the Lord and this is what he prayed in Second Kings nineteen sixteen through 19 Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now O Lord our God I pray deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone O Lord our God and notice he's not praying for himself he's praying for the glory of God and immediately Isaiah the prophet gets a message from God and sends it to from another messenger to Hezekiah and the message is thus says the Lord the God of Israel because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib king of Assyria I I have heard you. And then when you go down, you find out that when Sennacherib surrounds Jerusalem and he's got this gigantic army that's just devouring the land. Verse 35 says, Then it happened at the night that the angel of the Lord, the same one Jacob wrestled with, went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose, all these soldiers were dead. And the text says, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. And in the white space, it says, with his tail between his legs, and lived in Nineveh. <laughs> and Jerusalem wasn't captured. Well, he went back to Nineveh and he chiseled the the great defeat of Lachish instead of Jerusalem, which would have been the prize city. But he did... Have his scribes and they they have this. We got to see some of these in the British Museum. He did have his scribes chisel in there. Well, we captured Jerusalem like a bird in its nest. He didn't mention that, you know, a huge chunk of his army was decimated. For some unknown reason in the middle of the night. God wants your prayers to come from a heart of passion. Earnestness zeal i mean if you're praying for the glory of god like you've learned then why wouldn't you ask with passion if you really want god to be glorified why not beg god to answer i mean it's all about his glory it's going to be good for you i'm sure that if some rich person said well anybody who begs me enough i'll give them a million dollars there'd be a lot of people pleading wouldn't there Please, please, please. Oh, you got to do better than that. Oh, please. People would be groveling all over the ground. Well, here we're talking about the glory of God. We're talking about eternal blessings in heaven. Moses prayed because he feared for the reputation of God. Jacob wanted God's blessing so he'd be glorified more so his descendants could honor the... The blessing that was uttered to him previously. Hannah wanted to have a child and she was willing to give it to the Lord. Hezekiah didn't want the names, the name of the Lord blasphemed among the pagans. Now, so does this mean that everything that we've learned about prayer is nullified, that if we're going to ask and seek and knock, that we're just gonna, God's gonna give us everything we want so we can indulge our flesh and sin ourselves into the grave? No. Does it mean that you don't have to pray for the glory of God? No. Does it mean that you don't have to ask according to God's will? And if you don't know what God's will is, then you don't have to pray, yet not my will, but thine be done. No. Does it nullify all the other instructions on prayer? No. It adds to them. Pray persistently. Pray zealously. Pray earnestly. He is adding to what he has said. He's not nullifying everything he said before. And what if you do this? What if you pray like this? Well, this leads us to the last little parable. Expect good answers to your prayers. Look at verses 11 and 13. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, there are three pairs of parallelism. You got the fish, the serpent, the egg, the scorpion, good gifts, and the Holy Spirit. The first parable and these first two parallelisms in this second part are all about food. The man wants three loaves, the man wants a fish, the man wants an egg. In the last part, he, he is given instead of a, a fish, he says he, he uh, even an earthly father wouldn't give a serpent to his son, which would deliver a deathly sting, or a scorpion if he asked for an egg. I mean, earthly fathers wouldn't do that. Or Kent Hughes says it sounds like something from Stephen King. No, he doesn't do that. The final parallelism, though, is what is, it's made, it seems kind of out of place here. When When you look at it, he says, so your heavenly father, he says, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You think, well, how did the Holy Spirit come in here? Well, if you remember, Luke loves the Holy Spirit, so he sticks the Holy Spirit in wherever he can get him. But here, he's thinking, okay, so why do we have all these food issues and now we're talking about Holy Spirit? You know, the good gifts could be anything any man might be able to supply, but the Holy Spirit is a gift which only who can supply? God, that's right. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, what does that mean? Well, some have said, well, what we need to do is we need to ask for sign gifts, miraculous gifts. That's what it's talking about. No, that's not what it's talking about. Spiritual gifts are given, as we have learned, to believers when they believe at the point of salvation according to the Spirit's desires, not ours, and he gives as He wills, and that sign gifts yes, are only for certain times of history, in certain limited places, for a certain limited time. We've learned that; it covered that, so that's not what He's talking about. So, is Jesus saying that really that the that the Father is going to give the Holy Spirit in the future, at the birth of the church? That's it. When the church is born in the future, believers are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that is true. But that's not what he's talking about either, because Jesus is telling them what they can have now. They don't even know anything about the church yet. So I think it's best to understand Jesus' statement to mean that when believers go to God in prayer, that God is willing to give them himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to help them. Remember that even in the Old Testament, Old Testament believers were born again by the Holy Spirit, weren't they? You remember Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 10? How is it you, being a teacher of Israel, do not know these things? That people are born of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit wasn't absent in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit led people to Christ. And Nicodemus should have known that. No brainer. Not only that, even in the Old Testament, not did God's, only God's spirit, not only did God's spirit come upon people to empower them for certain tasks, but just to help them with sanctification, just living a godly life. He said, "Well, how do we know that? Because of what Jesus tells the disciples in John 14:17, when he says, "He that is the Holy Spirit abides with you now, but will be in you." When the church is born, Jesus says as believers in the Old Testament era, you have the Holy Spirit with you to help you live for the glory of God. But in the future, when the church is established, you, he will be in all of believers. We know that from Romans eight, nine. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But the point is, is both in Old Testament era and New Testament era, people were born again by the Spirit and helped by the Spirit to live for the glory of God. That's just kind of a standard common factor. It's a degree thing between what happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament, not that the Old Testament were kind of born again by the Spirit and then left the rest of the time to live their lives in the power of the flesh. That's not how it was. Jesus wants us to understand, though, when he says this, that God isn't like an earthly father. I mean, granted, what earthly father is going to give their their son who wants, you know, something to eat? A, a snake, a poisonous viper, or a scorpion? I mean, earthly fathers won't even do that. The point is, is if God is our heavenly father, and he is a perfect father, he's even willing... To give the greatest gift that anyone could ever ask. And that is the ongoing assistance, help, aid of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about it. Think about how we are able to walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That we can understand the Word of God because of the Holy Spirit. That we're able to grow in Christ's likeness because of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit convicts us because He is there dwelling in The whole point is, is that the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us to help us, to nurture us. And here it is. Here's the contrast. If God is willing to give us the greatest gift, then he's willing to give us everything down the line. It's really similar to what Paul says, right? In Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us? All things. You see, if you have this multi-billionaire and he says, all my resources are at your disposal, and then you come to him and say, well, you know, can I have three slices of bread? No brainer, you know, here. I'll I'll buy you a whole chain of bakeries. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit, you know you're going to get everything lesser than that is the whole point. That's the contrast that Jesus is making here. So when you pray to your heavenly father, do not compare him to the sleepy neighbor. Do not compare him to a reluctant neighbor. Do not think of God as being inconvenienced. Don't think of God as giving you a serpent when you want a fish or a scorpion when you want an egg. Think of him as being willing to give you the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, and that is the ongoing aid and assistance of the Holy Spirit and everything below that, which is everything. Golden Heise, in his commentary on Luke, makes this concluding remark of the parable. No regenerate child of God should ever doubt that when he prays to God out of real need, his prayer will be answered. He who doubts this does him the greatest dishonor for by not believing that he will give what we really need. We in fact appear to regard him as less sympathetic and less faithful than an ordinary earthly father or even an ordinary earthly friend. Therefore, unbelief in relation to the answering of prayer is not only a weakness, but as a serious sin and utter folly, end quote. I think if we were convinced that God was always going to answer our prayers, that we would pray much more and much more passionately. It is unbelief that keeps us from doing that. So when you leave here today, I hope that you realize that yes, all those other things are important, but in my praying for God's name to be hallowed in my prayer for the kingdom of Christ to come in my prayers for my daily needs and the needs of my neighbor in my prayer for the forgiveness of sin and that others would be forgiven. in all of that, I need to do it passionately. I need to do it zealously. I need to come to God and say, okay, Lord, I, I think this is your will. If not, then do your will and then go at it. And if we know it's his, his will, then just go at it. And even when all hope is lost and we think, oh, well, he could never pull through now. Oh, yes, he can. So there's been so many times when God has pulled through when it couldn't happen anymore. He loves to do that. And so pray, pray and do it persistently. Do it zealously. And don't forget that your God always gives you good things, never bad things. And so we can always rejoice in whatever the answer is. If it's yes, great. If it's no, great. If it's wait, great. Because we have a great God who is good and he always gives good things. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what we learn in these two parables and this teaching here in Luke. Father, we just ask that you would make us men and women who come Before the throne of grace with great reverence, with great fear, yet great earnestness, realizing that there's no reason to come before you unless it's important. And whether it's a large request or a small request, since you have told us to pray about all things, everything's important. So we must come before you and yet do it persistently to not give up on those things we are confident will bring you glory. And so, Father, help us to be a church of passionate prayers that we might pray with diligence, with fire, seething hot. And then may we trust that you always will give us good answers for you are a good God and you love your children more than any earthly father ever could. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.